I'm Brett Tomlinson from the Princeton Alumni Weekly, and you're listening to The Podcast. Our guest this month is Carlos Lozada from the graduate class of 1997. He's the nonfiction book critic for The Washington Post. He joined The Post in 2005 and covered economics and national security before beginning his current role in 2015. He has received a National Book Critics Circle Citation for Excellence in Reviewing, and earlier this year, he was a Pulitzer Prize finalist in criticism. And if my exhaustive research is correct, he also is a past champion of the Washington Post Table Tennis Tournament. Um, Carlos, thank you for joining me. Thanks for uh, having me. That was definitely the, the highlight of my, of my time at the Post. Winning that tournament, I got a, a Starbucks gift card. <laughs> Excellent. What was the what was the table tennis scene like at uh, Princeton when you were there? Uh, I lived in the graduate college uh, for my first year. Um, there were a couple of tables there that we would sometimes uh, hit after uh, spending time at the D bar. So um, uh, it was it was what you would think it would be for for a bunch of graduate students. Um, well, I'd like to obviously talk with you about the work that you do, but to begin. Could you tell me a bit about your, your background at, at Princeton? I mean, you were a, a master's student at the Wilson School. Um, what did you hope to do? What did you expect to do? And, and was journalism on your radar at that point? Journalism wasn't on my radar at all. I, I went to Princeton after getting sort of a, a traditional liberal arts education at, at Notre Dame. And at Princeton, I, I was hoping to get a, a deeper grounding um, in the analytic policy tools of, you know, economics and, and, and social science. Uh, and my thought was to return to Peru, where I'm from originally, and maybe get involved in working at the central bank there. Um, and after Princeton, um, I worked at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta for a few years. Uh, it was great because um, the man who years later would become the Fed chairman was my, my macroeconomics professor at, at Princeton, Ben, ben Bernanke. Um, but uh, journalism was not on my radar at all. Um, I just realized uh, after spending some time at the Fed that I was not, that it wasn't for me. That I wasn't, I wasn't uh, so interested in in, uh, in banking or or finance or central banking. Uh, and, and I'd written just as a hobby uh, for the Atlanta paper, for my uh, Notre Dame alumni magazine. And I thought maybe you know maybe that's what I need to be doing. Uh, so I moved to Washington and got a job at Foreign Policy magazine. Um, was there for five years and eventually made my way to the post. And what about working in books and book reviewing? Uh, why, why were you, why did you feel like that was something you wanted to do and, and why did, do you think that it uh, suited you? Yeah, it's funny. I think sort of careers only make sense in hindsight when you see how, you know, A led to B led to C. I mean, I've always been a, a, a pretty devoted reader, but um, so are a lot of people, you know, it doesn't mean I have to become a book critic. Um, I edited our coverage of economics and national security at the Post first, and then uh, for five years I was editor of our Sunday opinion section, Outlook, and I had a great time doing that. But by 2014 or so, I sort of knew that I wanted to try something different, and I wasn't sure what it was going to be. Um, and then our longtime book critic, Jonathan Yardley, longtime meaning like 30 plus years, uh, announced he was going to retire. And so I just thought that would be really interesting. That would be a fun thing to try and to try to do differently. You know, there's been so much change and innovation in, in journalism, but, but literary criticism, book criticism is kind of, you know, it 
hasn't changed all that much, and I thought it'd be fun to try to try to give it my own imprint if I could. Uh, so I made a pitch here to the to the bosses, and they let me do it, and it's been a blast. It's been really fun. Take take me through your day. Uh, I gathered there are quite a few books that are coming in. Uh, <laughs> what's a typical day in the life, and and how do you kind of sort through it all and decide uh, what what deserves a review? Yeah, that's. That's a great question because I didn't realize when I started the job, you know, I, I figured my time would be divided between uh, reading and writing, right? And a lot of time is actually devoted to thinking about what to read and what to write about. Um, you know, I get uh, deluged with unsolicited um, books coming in. Um, I go to the mail. I think I may be the only person at the post who goes to the mailroom every day. Um, and I sort through, you know, anything from 30 to 50 books that, are, that have come in publicists, um, agents, authors themselves are constantly pitching me. I, I can't be hostage to the new. You know, I have to decide what I think is important. And some of that may be obvious, like former FBI director James Comey has a book coming out. Like, I'm going to write about that book, you know. Um, but what I'm trying to do a lot of now is to tackle um, sort of thematic issues. Like, there's a big debate about what's happening to truth in America. And so... I read, you know, five different books that are coming out um, or that have come out over the past, you know, several months that take different looks at that. Um, uh, you know, I did the same with books about the United States and Russia, you know, some that focus very deliberately on, on Trump and Russia, some that take, you know, bigger, longer term perspectives. Um, and so that way I feel like I'm setting my agenda a little bit rather than letting whatever the publishers are doing uh, determine how I how I spend my day, um, but other than that, it's um, it's a lot of reading, rereading. Sometimes I read other books that I'm not reviewing, but that I feel will um, give me the background I need to review a book that I am reviewing. Um, so it's a lot. It's a lot. Writing um, uh, takes up relatively less of the time than than reading. Um. And I've heard you in another interview uh, speak about your process of reading and, and rereading. And, and yeah. um, can you walk me through that just a bit and, 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 and let me know, uh, you know, why do you think that process works for you? And why do you, mm -hmm. do you think it's important to do that uh, when you're kind of evaluating a, a book? Sure. It's a process I think I came up with almost just accidentally. I started doing it that way and then I just kept on doing it that way. I don't know if it's probably not the most efficient way. Uh, for, for me to read, but it, but it works for me. I basically go through each book that I'm reviewing three times. Uh, first, I just read it straight through with a pen, making a lot of notes in the margins, you know, reactions to things, um, a, lot of, uh, a, lot of, a lot of underlining and cross-referencing and checking footnotes, you know, and that's, that's the most sort of thorough read that I give it. When I'm done with that, um, I hopefully put the book aside for a little while, but then I, I, I pick it up again uh, with a highlighter. And this time I, I read it again, but I focus on the stuff that apparently, uh, you know, I seized on during the first read. You know, so I, I look at the notes that I made. I look at the things that I underlined. I look at the passages that I felt were, were most significant. And, um, and then with the highlighter, I sort of call those and I, and I look at the one and I focus on the ones that, that I think are really important. You know, so that way I'm done with the book a second time. Then I open up a file, um, and I go through the book again, looking just at the stuff that I highlighted and sort of come up with a subset of that so that when I'm done with that process, 
it may be like a 400 page book and I have maybe, you know, 3000 words of notes and quotes and ideas from the book. And then that becomes my raw material for the review. Once I've done all that, I feel like I know the book really well. And the writing process is actually relatively quick once I've gone through that incredibly painful, you know, um, arduous process of reading and rereading the books, especially when I'm doing a review that maybe hits, you know, three or four or five different books. Uh, that first, that, that first, you know, series of cuts takes a long time. Um, that may not be the way to do it. It's the way that works for me. I, I don't really know how other critics do it. Um, but what I like about it is that, you know, an author of a book or another reader of the same book can take issue with my conclusions or thoughts about a book, but they can't really say that I didn't um, engage with it deeply and 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 take it seriously. Um, so I think that's why that's why it it works. And while the Post is of course a national and an international mm -hmm. publication, Washington is to some degree kind of a company town. Uh, people care about politics. People care about policy. How much does that shape the way that you approach not just choosing books, but also how, how you review them and how you mm -hmm. kind of uh, approach them? Yeah, I think that there's a heavy diet of political coverage for me, especially being the, the nonfiction book critic. We have a, a wonderful critic who focuses on, on fiction, Ron Charles. Um, when, I, when I started the job in January 2015, I figured it would be sort of a nice mix of, of memoir and history and economics and some politics. Um, but like so much in sort of the, the, the Trump presidency in our, our, our current moment, uh, that became a really dominant uh, focus. And so politics is a huge part of what, of what I, I write about. Sometimes I feel like I'm a, a political writer masquerading as a, as a book critic. Um, it sort of started in really the, that summer of 2015 when Donald Trump suddenly caught fire and was began to lead in the polls very quickly. So I had this, this idea that I, I talked over with one of the editors here. I said, look, I want to just read a bunch of Trump's books, not just The Art of the Deal, but, you know, he's written or he's, he's authored, published, you know, maybe like you know, 18 or 20 books. And so I just want to read a bunch of them and sort of see what's there. And my editor uh, said, that's a great idea, but do it really quickly because who knows how long this interest is going to last, you know? Um, so I did that and there was such a response. I ended up reading eight Trump books, uh, including the three memoirs, you know, Art of the Deal and Surviving at the Top and Art of the Comeback. Um, and there was such an intense reader reaction to that, um, that I said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to keep exploring this further. And it's not just books about Trump, but really books about, you know, populism, for instance, right? Books about, about the white working class, books about identity, books about misogyny. Um, all these things um, seem to end up relating to where we are politically right now. And do you see your job as sort of a, a service of, to the people who aren't going to have the time to read all these books and uh, to, to kind of give them a good, a good survey of, of some of the arguments that are out there? I think that's a big part of it. I think that people don't always read book reviews in order to decide what books to read. They read book reviews so that they don't have to read the books. You know, that's how I consume book reviews. I mean, you know, you pick up 
the Washington Post on Sunday or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, and you go through the book section, and it's like you're going to run out and buy a bunch of those books. You know, you you get uh, you you may decide to buy one a month. I don't know, you know, but I think that um, I see my job as as in part letting people know um, not just what new books are coming out, but even sometimes what old books are relevant again and and matter once more. Um, and so I definitely see kind of a, a reader service aspect to to what I do. Um, it's a little different sometimes from from other forms of criticism where uh, it's sort of much more pegged to um, you know the movie that is out this weekend or you know the TV series with the amazing finale that is coming out now. Um, I, I feel like I have a little bit more freedom to to range when it comes to time, you know, like if I, if I don't hit a book right when it comes out, I can come back to it when I'm looking at several books that deal with, with similar themes. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I think, I mean, a lot of journalism is, is, is reader service. Uh, and so I, I definitely see that as, as part of my role. Um, I wanted to ask you a bit about recommendations. Uh, sure. what, what is on your, uh, on your bookshelf right now, what are what are you looking forward to, or what are you reading? I have this pile of books on my nightstand that I think of as like my, my shame pile. You know, books that I've always felt I should read, but I but I never get to, and they're just staring at me every night. Um, but uh, if I think about some of the books that I've uh, been struck by, and that in in the last you know three plus years in this job, um, you know, I don't do this kind of year end round of best books. I, I try to do a kind of most memorable books, books that for better or for worse, I think, you know, years from now, I'll, I'll remember reading. Um, and one of those uh, actually has a, has a Princeton connection. Um, Matthew Desmond, professor of sociology at Princeton, uh, wrote Evicted. I'm, I'm hardly the only person to like that book. Um, but I was one of the early ones to, to start doubting it. Um, I think it, you know, it, it won all sorts of prizes. Uh, it's, it's an amazing look at, um, at Milwaukee, uh, and a community that lives under the constant threat and reality of eviction. Desmond spent a lot of time there, uh, you know, interviewing, living with, hanging out with, um, with, with renters, with landlords, uh, sort of like in the midst of Great Recession kind of, you know, period. And, um, and it's just an extraordinarily uh, reported and written book. Um, that's the other thing too, is like a sociologist who like writes like the gods. It's just, it's, it's almost unfair. Um, uh, a memoir I read in the last couple of years that I really liked was by Tracy K. Smith, the, the poet laureate. Also, actually everything has a Princeton connection. This was not a setup. I promise you, uh, Tracy K. Smith, who's, who's an English professor or, or a creative writing professor, I believe at, yes. at Princeton, uh, but is the U S poet laureate now, um, wrote a wonderful memoir, uh, called ordinary light. I'm embarrassed to say I've I've actually read little of her poetry, but I loved reading her her memoir um, about sort of grappling with with um, faith and her relationship with her mother. Um, it's just it's just a very spare, um, tightly written but very revealing uh, memoir that I I liked a lot. Um, there's a book called and this is more in the political vein called The Speechwriter. Uh, by Barton Swain, which is just a a wonderful look at um, uh, being a speechwriter for um, for a governor for the governor of South Carolina. Everyone remembers Mark Sanford for 
um, having his famous Appalachian Trail moment uh, where, you know, he said he was out hiking, but he was actually with his, his, his girlfriend in Argentina. And Barton Swain was his speechwriter. He wrote every speech that Mark Samford delivered, except, of course, for that one. Uh, and it's a wonderful look at political communication. Uh, it's a slim little book. It kind of came and went. I don't think it got a ton of attention, but, um, but it, it deserves it. Um, so, um, and recently, uh, just as, as far as the summer goes, I, um, as I mentioned, I read a, uh, several books on, on uh, the United States and Russia and several books on sort of truth and politics today. And in that set, um, I really enjoyed um, The Road to Unfreedom by Timothy Snyder, who also wrote On Tyranny uh, that came out um, maybe like a year and a half ago. Um, and in the truth books, there's a slim little book by a guy named Lee McIntyre, who's a philosophy professor, um, called um, Post-Truth, I believe. And it's sort of a wonderful summary on the philosophy and politics of, of, of thinking about, about truth in, in public life. Um, there's a lot of books coming out on the subject. That one I, I liked a lot. I imagine most people who have the type of relationship with books that you have uh, started young. What, what, were <laughs> yes. your, what were your favorite books as, as a child? Oh, gosh. Um, by far, I, well, I shouldn't say by far. I, a book that I, I still come back to and read at least once a year, and now I've just read it with my children, uh, is Harriet the Spy. Um, I loved Harriet the Spy. Hated the movie. No one should watch that movie. But I loved <laughs> Harriet the Spy by Louise Fitzhugh. Um, I had nothing in common with Harriet. You know, she's this, like, rich Upper East Side brat. Um, and yet I wanted to be her, you know? Like, she wanted to be a spy and a writer. And and uh, when I was a kid, I was I was blown away by by reading her. And then later I read uh, the sequel uh, called The Long Secret, which is actually a wonderful summer book because it's Harriet and one of her friends at the beach. Um, uh, also, as a kid, I read this series of books called The Great Brain um, by this guy named J.D. Fitzgerald, uh, who was, it's basically like reminiscing about his childhood growing up as like the only Catholic family, this little Mormon town in, in Utah. Um, and I, I read those obsessively. And uh, I still, I have the, the original copies that I read like in the early 80s. And, uh, and those are the ones that I'm reading now with, with my own kids. Looking back at them, I think, I mean, I had nothing in common with, uh, with these characters, except that they, they felt like outsiders. You know, they felt kind of uncomfortable sometimes in their own place, in their own skin, and they were always striving for something more. And, um, and they, they just stayed with me. Um, and then as a teen, I, I think I read every, everything, Agatha Christie, uh, Murder Mystery, uh, that she published. I just kind of went on this tear where I was obsessed with those. Um, I wouldn't be a very good uh, alumni magazine interviewer if I didn't ask you about your, your Princeton experience mm -hmm. and how that may have uh, shaped uh, the work that you do today. So do, is there anything from your uh, Wilson School yeah. uh, experience that, that you come back to uh, as, as a reviewer? Um, well, as you can imagine, there's a ton of Wilson School grads in Washington. Uh, and so, first of all, it was just a great community that I was able to spend two years with, and I still see a lot of those people. Um, uh, we just had a Fourth of July barbecue at a at a the house of someone that um, that I met at, at Princeton, and all the people who were invited were from that same graduating class at the at the Wilson School, or you know, plus minus one or two years. 
Um, you know, when I went there, I really thought that, as, as I mentioned, that I, I just wanted kind of the, the sort of, you know, analytic and, and technical grounding in, in, in public policy and economics. And I certainly got some of that. But when I, when I think back on it, it, it sort of fits with what I'm doing now in the sense that I, some of the things I remember reading, um, again, are those things that stay with you, you know, like, um, Don Stokes was this famous political scientist who taught taught a, a policy seminar at the Wilson School, and he made us read portions of Robert Caro's *The Power Broker*, um, and that look at how um, kind of the, the brutal politics of public policy um, was extraordinary and was was so useful to to think about as like a, a 22 year old, 23 year old kid. I was I was fairly young at at the Wilson School. Um, and also, we read a book called Protecting Soldiers and Mothers by uh, Theta Scotchpole um, about the origins of the welfare state um, in, in, in the United States. And again, it was that, that sort of intersection of, of hard political reality with, with social policy. Um, and so those readings and our conversations and discussions about those readings um, were really formative for me in ways that, that I only realize, you know, years later looking back. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful to, to the Wilson School uh, for that. Um, Princeton is a place that, you know, as a graduate student feels very geared to its undergrads. Um, and, and that's fine. I mean, that's what, that's, that's what it should be, I think. Um, but uh, I certainly got a lot out of it in, in ways that only became more apparent over time. Uh, my first job at the Post was as economics editor, and certainly the fact that I'd studied public policy at Princeton didn't hurt me in that in that capacity. And uh, my year doing that job was precisely when Bernanke became the Fed chairman. So I felt I had some insight that I could offer to the reporters who were working on that and that I was editing. Did you pull out your uh, lecture notes from uh, from the Wilson School? I did. I actually took. What was it called like advanced macroeconomics class with with Bernanke? We used his own textbook too. It was like Abel and Bernanke was the was the book. Um, but I did, and I wrote just when he was becoming Fed chair. I wrote a piece for our Sunday opinion section about about what it was like to take his class. Um, I remember this great moment in uh, in like either a midterm exam or his final exam, where he asked a question that was. Um, far beyond anything that we had covered in the class. And some of the students, some of my, my, my classmates were upset by this and, and, you know, complained to him in the subsequent class. Like, you know, why did you ask us this thing? We had no basis of, you know, uh, of, you know, being able to answer it because it wasn't anything we covered. And he just looked at us and said, you know, um, I don't see an exam as simply an opportunity to kind of spit back out what you've learned in class. The exam itself is a learning opportunity, right? And that always stayed with me, you know? And so I, I wrote about that um, in this essay and thinking, of course, that now he was gonna have his own learning opportunity and switching from the academy to, uh, uh, to the chairmanship of the Fed. I remember when he began the chairmanship, uh, I did an interview with Alan Blinder and he oh, talked about uh, how Bernanke would be so much easier to understand versus Greenspan, you wouldn't have to parse his words quite as much. I don't know if it exactly bore out the, the way he expected it to, but... Uh. No, I think, I think that's probably right. I mean, Greenspan was so famously, you know, cryptic. Um, 
And I'm, I'm sure that that experience of, you know, teaching undergrads and um, a bunch of ignorant graduate students like me uh, was probably helpful in, in, in spelling out um, policy. And he'd been, I just remembered, of course, he didn't come straight from Princeton. He had been uh, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors for, for Bush before becoming Fed chairman. Um, so um, then again, it's a low bar when trying to be, uh, you know, more understandable than Alan Greenspan. Well, Carlos, thank you so much for doing this. I really uh, enjoyed uh, speaking with you. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. You can read Carlos Lozada's reviews at WashingtonPost.com and in the Sunday Outlook section of the Washington Post print edition. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more, please subscribe to Princeton Alumni Weekly Podcasts in iTunes. And if you'd like to read more about Princeton authors, alumni, and faculty, check out our monthly Princeton Books email newsletter. You can sign up at paw.princeton.edu slash email. That's it for this episode. We'll be back in September when Allie Wenner will be talking with Professor Alan Kruger about the economics of concert tickets. This interview was recorded on-site at The Washington Post. The music is licensed from First Com Music. <laughs>